This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me in the studio today is the esteemed Dr. Bob Bust. Now, Bob is long known to me. He, he taught me many, many things. Uh, but Bob's history is many and varied. He's, his original PhD was in medicinal chemistry and he worked with postdoctoral studies at New York State Department working on thrombin inhibitors. But he's also an osteopath, a chiropractor, and a naturopath of some 35 odd years experience. And, <laughs> and having dealt with many, many stressed patients over your decades of practice, Bob, we're here today to talk about adrenal fatigue. We are indeed, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well, and how are you? <laughs> I'm very good indeed. And I do say that with, with homage to you because I have learnt so many practical things from you regarding not just supplementation but importantly the use of diet and lifestyle in therapy. Mm. And that's something that you always use as a, as a linchpin in well, your Well, that's therapy. excellent because that's what it's really all about, isn't it? All the theory in the world is fine but you've got to be able to put it to good use. That's right. And I, I also make the caveat that supplements are called supplements, not mainaments. It's <laughs> true. Yeah, I've never used uh, you know, supplements with good effect with uh, fast food. And <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so, Bob, tell me about adrenal fatigue. It's so widespread, but give it some sort of definition. All right. Well, look, ad adrenal fatigue firstly isn't recognised officially by the medical profession. But Addison's disease, which is you know, run out of uh, adrenal function completely, and, and Cushing's disease, where you've actually got too much uh, cortisol, they're well accepted. Mm. But what we're interested in is when you've not run out of cortisol, but you're getting close to running out, or when you've got too much uh, cortisol, obviously, but you haven't quite got to the stage where the Cushing's syndrome is or Cushing's disease. You know, like we're looking at that place just where we haven't quite got to where it's acceptable. but Outside the black box. Outside the black box, but very much associated with many of the disorders that we see presenting in our clinics. Stress is something that's ubiquitous in our environment. You mm. know, it, was, it was quoted, I think, about five years ago that stress has increased threefold since the 1970s or something like that. How common is adrenal stress? Look, I think ad adrenal stress is probably... Almost 100% at times. It depends on the person and the sort of situation that they're going through. But it's much more common now, I believe, than it was, say, you know, a million years ago when Homo, whatever it was back then, was sort of going through all the problems of trying to get food, trying to get water, trying to get through droughts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, we needed hormones and neurotransmitters to actually um, do the right thing by us and get us through this 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 particular point in evolution. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. So let's talk about the function of this adrenal stress. You talk about, you know, a million years ago, we needed cortisol and adrenaline to be able to evade being prey. Hmm. So let's talk about its, its function. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about Hans Seil's um, general adaptation syndrome. Okay. Well, the, the, the real function is that when we come across a, a stressful situation, and it could be anything, anything that really stresses us. This is called, in, in Hans Selye's um, terms, the alarm reaction. And what happens then is we release adrenaline, noradrenaline. These are the catecholamines. And they mediate this very acute, stressful reaction. And if I can just go off just for a minute, um, this happened to me when I first came against television. And I noticed that I was going to the toilet several times when I went into the studio. And everything was moving in that 
particular part. And I got in front of the cameras. There's three cameras rolling around. You know, the lights are on. And then they're counting down five, four, three. And my brain stopped working completely. So I had absolutely no cognition, mm. no memory. Mm. And she asked me a question. This was more in Duval on Channel 10. Yeah. Oh, boy. And I know that my mouth was moving, but I don't know what I was saying. It was just nothing there. My heart rate was up. My breathing was increased, so my respiration was up. It was just incredible. I was sweating in the palms. Now, all of these particular signs are related to adrenaline and noradrenaline. When you're in this situation, acute stress, noradrenaline is going to constrict all the blood vessels in the periphery, and adrenaline is going to get more blood into the big muscles. Now, in the past, you can understand why that would be. Something's chasing you or you've got to go and get your food for the night. You've got a spear in your hand. So you really need to increase oxygenation, increase blood flow into the main muscle groups. And we take blood away from the organs that we don't need at that time, yeah. like the sex organs and digestion, digestion and so yeah. on. So basically, this is the alarm reaction. And I think a lot of people out there could kind of relate to this. I'm sure we've all been in that situation. So it's not unusual for the alarm reaction to be associated with just about everyone that's listening to this program. After the alarm reaction, though, normally we come back to normal. But if we don't, and it's sort of still there, whatever it is is still there. It's an ongoing stress. We go through a resistance phase where cortisol comes in. So the adrenal gland in itself has two parts. The middle part is the medulla that contains the catecholamines, adrenaline, noradrenaline. And the cortex, the outer part, contains the glucocorticoids, mineralocorticoids, androgens, and so on. So that comes in, and it can stay there for a week, a month. It can stay there for years. And this is the phase where recovery occurs. Your energy may be down. You're not quite back to normal. And if this keeps going on and on, your cortisol is up, of course, eventually you just may run out of cortisol. You end up then with what we're calling burnout. Now, burnout is also associated with various um, disorders that we can talk about later. So we've got disorders associated with the resistance phase of Hans Selye's... Incidentally, Hans Selye invented the word stress. He was a French guy, 1936, I think it was. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. So we've got the two lots of disorders that are associated with the high cortisol and the low cortisol, which is the burnout phase. Yeah. And this is something that I think um, is, is well regarded now by most people um, in the scientific world and the medical profession. So what are the contributors to adrenal fatigue? Well, the contributors can vary. And I, I like to think that they're anything that stresses you. Uh, if you're not getting enough sleep, for example, that is certainly a factor. And also poor food choices. Uh, if you're driving yourself constantly and not having any break, or you're a, a perfectionist, uh, you have no outlets, uh, you're feeling trapped, helpless, powerless, all of these things, uh, particularly with severe chronic uh, emotional and also physical trauma or illness can all be factors that contribute to adrenal stress. But also, as far as the life events go, you've got death of a spouse, obviously, mm. would be number one. And it goes on with divorce, um, you lose your job, you've got like the global financial crisis knocked out a lot of people. Uh, if you've got chronic degenerative painful disorders, all of those are certainly affecting your stress hormones at various times and at various levels. 
So they're the sort of factors that you would uh, actually be looking at as far as the causes. You know what I feel is that adrenal fatigue seems to be the physical manifestation of what is very often either an emotional type driven issue, mm. whether it's be you know financial emotional stress or a painful condition. But, but in each of those occasions, in, in the first one, you've got the thoughts arising first and the thoughts then generate certain hormones and neurotransmitters that go around and, and the dastardly deed is done. That's why it's really easy to get over. Um, things that come from just thoughts, you can put your mind on something else and you can get over a stress perhaps. But mm. if you've got emotional hormones racing around, the half-life of those emotional hormones are entirely different. So that even though you know that you really should get over this, it takes maybe half a minute, a minute or two minutes for them to be metabolized. In the case of catecholamines, you've got catecholamine and methyltransferase, you've got monamine oxidases and so on. Yep. So that even though the intention might be good and you say, look, I've got to get out of this stressful situation. Yeah. If, in fact, there are certain neurotransmitters and hormones that are going to be in your bloodstream, whether you like it or not, then you're going to be carried along for minutes and there's nothing you can do about it except just observe the emotional reaction that you were talking about. Just put your attention on it. Don't try and change it. Mm. Don't try and judge it. Don't do anything, but just say, yes, my little anger, I see you. <laughs> you don't do anything about it. Well, this is mindfulness, isn't it? This is mindfulness, yeah. exactly. And it's a little bit different. Dr. Mark Donahoe and I talk about this regularly. It's right. a little bit different from cognitive behaviour therapy. Oh, yes. This is more like... I will bend like a reed in the wind. I yes. will just be with it and yes. just accept that it is there, but put it in its place that that's what it is. Exactly. Well, the Zen Buddhist would say, when you eat, just eat. When you walk, just walk. Yeah. Or when you wash up, just wash up. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's very simple, really, when you think about it. But what we do is you know, when we eat, we just think. We watch the television. We argue. You know, We carry on. And this is the problem because we're all the time bringing the thought process in. And this is the thing that stimulates the stress process that we're talking about. Okay, so I want to link that with something that happened to you as well, um, that I, again, I learned from this from you many, many years uh, ago, we go. <laughs> when, <laughs> when you were walking and you were trapped, were you trapped in, in an alpine uh, cabin? It, it's Redbow, yeah. And, and you got severe anxiety, and the only thing that you could do was to walk, was to pace the cabin around and around to wear off the catecholamine type. Um, effect. Yeah, that's right. What happened is I was down in Threadbone. We did some cross-country skiing and we went out. We came back and it was a whiteout. Mm. And it was a very, very stressful day. And I'd been eating chocolate all day and, you know, yep. really getting the sugar level up and so on. And I got back to the, the, to the, um, to the lodge and I felt anxiety and panic, real panic. I didn't know what was going on. Subsequently, of course, I found out that when a person panics, they have high lactic acid levels or lactate mm. in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. If you infuse someone with 0.5 molar lactate, 95% of the people out there are going to panic. Yep. So what happens is a lot of people with anxiety and panic disorder are people that have stopped breathing, like they're stressed, they've got their head into their work or whatever they're doing, and they're increasing carbon dioxide. They're not oxygenating. 
So when you're not breathing, when you're not oxygenating, you're building up carbon dioxide in the bloodstream, you're building up lactic acid, you are anaerobic. You're not moving the substrates through from the cytoplasm in glycolysis through into the mitochondria. You're not getting energy. Yeah. So what we really need to be doing is to get rid of the lactic acid. And that's why, as you'll see, with this stress, you really need to sleep. Sleep is very important because it's only through sleep we can metabolize lactic acid back through gluconeogenesis, back to, you know, store it as glycogen again or take it into blood sugar. Yep. And is that why some people, after an extremely stressful acute event, they almost collapse? Yes, yep. exactly, because they haven't got any oxygen, they're flooded with adrenaline, and it's all dressed up with nowhere to go. So just very mild exercise, though, would that be a decent therapy for, for some people, or would you say these people need sleep? No, I, look, I think mild, just, just to keep walking, you know, actually uses up the adrenaline that might be remaining. And, you know, that's why before you meditate, you'd men you mentioned mindfulness. If you're trying to sit down quietly for 20 minutes and, and do nothing, a lot of people say, I can't do this. Mm. Well, they can't do it because there's too much adrenaline floating around. Yeah. But if you go for a walk, a brisk walk for half an hour, then come back and sit down, you'll find it different because you've used up a lot of those catecholamines that we're talking about. We've already gone into some of the signs and symptoms, but let's go into some of the particular things that might uh, signal that you're suffering from adrenal fatigue. Okay, you mean the, the, the common signs and symptoms? Mm. Well, the most common one, I think, would be a difficulty getting up in the morning. Uh, a lot of people can't get out of bed before nine o'clock. Now, this immediately says to me, hang on, we've got to do a few tests here. Have a look at their cortisol levels. Have a look at their neurotransmitters. See what is going on, because invariably the cortisol melatonin thing, the cycle is that they should be opposite each other is out of whack and you really need to get those measured. The other thing that you'll notice is that there's fatigue that's not relieved by sleep. So when you do wake at nine o'clock, you feel like something the cat's dragged in. And it doesn't mean you've had a nasty night the night before either. It's just that you just haven't been able to metabolize the things that you needed to during the evening. You also may be craving salt. So people that crave salt that is an indication to look a little bit further because it means that one of the, um, the mineralocorticoids like aldosterone is down and that's because um, of something called the pregnenolone steel we can talk about a little bit later. Yeah, sure. Also, um, libido is down. If, if your sex drive is down, you don't know why. There's no obvious reason. It could be because of the stealing of the androgens uh, to make uh, cortisol. Also, a, a person that's not sleeping often is depressed. That's what you always look for. If someone just cannot get enough sleep, you have a look at depression. So these are all the things together with your memory's gone, your cognitive function's not as good. All of those things are some of the signs and symptoms that are, that are quite common in someone that has adrenal fatigue. So this is really interesting because things like a craving for salt, combining it with low blood pressure, I, I see that commonly. Um, but I, I, I really like that little um, practical tip of a decreased sex drive. And I think mm. you've got a practical tip for a male in the morning. I do. <laughs> <laughs> what is the practical tip for if, a male in the they morning? Don't, if they don't wake up with a hard on. Oh, yeah. Is that what it is? Well, well yeah. I think we're going to have to edit <laughs> this, Marcus. <laughs> no, no, that, that's fine. Um, it, it means that you don't have some um, physical problem. It means... 
if you don't wake up, then you have a physical problem. If you do wake up, uh, it means that you don't have a physical problem for um, erectile dysfunction. I think that's what you're referring yeah. to. Yeah. So a guy that actually um, can't get um, a, a proper erection yeah. might wonder why, but if he can actually wake in the morning with an erection, then there is no physical problem. It is just more of a psychosocial problem. Gotcha. Okay, so we've talked about some of the common symptoms, but what are the main neurotransmitters and hormones that are involved in creating these symptoms? Mm. Well, the main ones, as I think we've said before, um, would be your adrenaline and noradrenaline. But some of the things that you would look for, for example, are dilated eyes. If you see someone with dilated pupils, it means that their sympathetic nervous system is working overtime because obviously when you are stressed and you're out in the open and you're looking for food or there's something chasing you, you need to get as much light as you can in and, and so on. I mentioned before that noradrenaline and adrenaline are both released from the adrenal medulla, but the noradrenaline is actually a constrictor of blood vessels and can actually help adrenaline move oxygenated blood into the main muscle groups. So you'll find that under, under um, a stressful situation, this actually will rise. Uh, also, the heart rate goes up, the blood pressure goes up, um, you've got uh, an increase in metabolism, an increase in respiration. And after all this happens, you can then, if it's, if it's a continual stress situation, up goes the corticotrophic releasing hormone in the hypothalamus that tends to release ACTH and cortisol. So you're bringing in a, um, a little bit more of the big guns because you realize the stress is not going to be just for two minutes. It's going to be a little bit longer, and that's when you bring in cortisol. So is, this, is there a phase where the increased blood pressure then just starts to run out, when the reserves run out and you just go, oh, to hell with it. And that's when you experience low blood pressure, the salt craving, things like that. Is that more of an end stage thing? Well, yes, I think that's exactly right. With the resistance phase, you've got high levels of cortisol and, and everything is going quite well, mm -hmm. but you do have some disorders associated with high uh, cortisol. Yep. But if it runs out, because you've, it's just been too long. I mean, it might have gone on for months or years. Then that's exactly right. And then you can have the, um, the cortisol running down and the blood pressure going down and, and everything's going in the reverse direction. And that's why it's so difficult to actually say this disorder has this type of level of cortisol or level mm. of adrenaline. You've really got to get the test to be absolutely sure. And not one test. You've got no. to take more than one test. Yeah, well, day. these days with the, the serial um, salivary cortisols where you, you get it in the morning and at lunch and afternoon and then perhaps going to bed again, and that's so easy because you can get it done with the saliva. So we've spoken about the physical manifestations and the energetic manifestations of adrenal fatigue, but it affects much more than just energy and thoughts and things like that. What about your immune system? Yeah, well, one of the problems is that when you've got high uh, cortisol, so supposing you're going through this resistance phase we're talking about, and it's been there for a while, you've got cortisol up, ACT, H is up and so on. At that situation, cortisol is an anti-inflammatory agent and it suppresses immune function. So with the immune function suppressed, you could have a greater um, series of colds, flu, uh, cancer, and wherever there's immune suppression. So high cortisol also has a downside in that it does repress immune function. So everything that 
is relying on the immune system to protect it suddenly isn't protected anymore. So the person that gets a cold and flu that has not got huge quantities of cortisol floating around is going to get over it in two or three days. Yep. But the person who's got too much cortisol due to the stress, they are going to maybe take two or three weeks or maybe even longer. And that's why, you know, the person that's stressed tends to come down with everything. You know, mm. they just can't get over it. School teachers are a good example of this, you know. They wait till the school holidays and then bang, down they come with everything. So let's talk about the, the various more chronic disorders that appear with this sort of chronic adrenal fatigue and raised cortisol. Okay. Well, if you've got raised um, corticotrophic releasing hormone and, and elevated cortisol, this tends to be associated with depression. That was the first one. But also anorexia. You've got panic disorder, metabolic syndrome and obesity. Also hyperthyroidism and premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual tension. So all of those disorders tend to be clustered around a high cortisol. Now, it's not saying that the, the high cortisol caused those disorders. It's just that there tends to be this clustering around. Now, on the other hand, with low, um, uh, with low cortisol, where you've got the reverse, say we've gone to the burnout situation, you'll often have that associated also with depression. But chronic fatigue syndrome is more associated with low cortisol. Also, fibromyalgia, uh, hypothyroidism, not hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism. Uh, Post-cortisone therapy, obviously, if you've just gone off cortisone, mm. uh, it takes a while for the whole system to come back into play. And also, um, post-chronic stress. So if you've had a huge amount of chronic stress, you're just left with, with no a cortisol at all. And that's what we're referring to there. But there's an interesting uh, area that I think is associated with low uh, cortisol, and this is the autoimmune area, which includes rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, um, multiple sclerosis, and so on. And this is, this is a very interesting area uh, because there's so much of this starting to happen worldwide now. You know, what's interesting to me is like, you know, you mentioned anorexia, but also metabolic syndrome and obesity. And obviously they seem to be at the different ends of the scale. But I wonder if, like you find with breathing, you know, these people don't breathe and suddenly they gasp or sigh. Mm. And you see that in chronic fatigue syndrome so often. And what about the anorexia because of the, the feeling of stress, but then the need to eat. And so they shove food into their mouth, ending up with a high caloric intake. Do you find that there's this sort of, um, for want of a better term, a binge purge type um, scenario with with the chronic stress and breathing, chronic stress and eating, chronic stress and sleep, for instance? It's quite possible that that's another factor that comes into it because anything that's intense like that mm. um, means that that person may be drawing in some of these stress hormones to cope with the situation like the person you mentioned before about um, mindfulness. Mm. I mean, not everyone is mindful. No. I mean, the world is full of non-mindful people. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's why we have a world that we do at the moment. Mm. So all of these factors will, would certainly factor in. Um, when it comes to autoimmune um, the situation, though, do you want to talk a little bit about it? Because I think it's, it's a really important area to, to discuss. Yeah, heck yeah. So, I mean, they're certainly on the rise, these autoimmune conditions. We're finding them rife in certain communities. And, and also, it's, it's happening in later life. I mean, one of my good friends at the moment, I mean, he's 68, 
and he's just come down with multiple sclerosis. Um, my son just came back from two years uh, around the world. You know, they take this sort of year off. Well, my son took two years off. Yeah. Had a really good time. Went right around the world in South America and everything. And he came back and ended up in a hospital in Bangkok. And he was diagnosed with diabetes type 1 with a blood sugar of 35 millimoles per litre. Nearly died. We now know that a lot of these disorders, these autoimmune disorders, there's a genetic susceptibility, an HLA factor that's, that's derived. Um, uh, and if you do have that and this stressful situation comes along, I think the stressful situation in a lot of these autoimmune disorders is either a reactive food or a pathogen mm. that have proteins. Now, those proteins are sensed by the body as being foreign. So antibodies are made against the foreign pathogen or the foreign food protein. The problem here is if that same amino acid sequence that the immune system rose the antibody against is also found in, say, collagen 2 fibers in your joint, you're going to end up with rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. If it's in the thyroid, they find the same protein seek or the same amino acid sequence, suddenly you've got uh, Hashimoto's or you've got um, um, Graves' disease. Uh, same in the kidney. So I think what I'm saying is with the diabetes, my son was exposed to Coxsackie B virus and some of these other things, that probably raised antibodies and then it started attacking the, the, the beta cells in the pancreas and knocked out all his insulin-producing cells. Now, this is happening also for another two um, young people, they're about 30, um, that my friend told me about just a couple of weeks ago. So there there's, seems to be an increase in diabetes type 1, which of course is this autoimmune type thing yeah. that's related to a stressful situation where a person moves themselves out of the, say, the bugs that they're used to. Mm. And let's face it, if we went back several hundred years, myself and my family wouldn't have moved maybe for a thousand years out of a little area of 100 kilometers. But now we're moving around the world. So we're moving into places where our immune system has never, ever been in contact with. Mm. And there's a lot of examples of it, like measles in Hawaii and so on. But I think this is having ramifications for autoimmune. And I wouldn't be surprised if the environment that we've changed and the foods that we've changed, agri-business, agri for example, we've got different sequences in the amino acids, as, for example, in our milk. The milk has different sequences, even one amino acid, like in the A2 milk that's now in supermarkets. Mm. All of this has got ramifications that's, I think, expressing itself in manifestation of various autoimmune disorders. So you mentioned the HLA, so that's the human leukocyte antigen. Yes. And, you know, there's various genes, if you like, that, um, uh, that express in, in various autoimmune disorders. There's very interesting research done by um, uh, Professor Alan Ebringer in King's, King's College in London, yeah. um, looking at, um, for instance, ankylosing spondylitis and um, not chlamydia. But a pathogen. It was a pathogen, yeah. 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 Mm. Um, now, you know, other work is showing that it's more than one. It's not just necessarily yeah, one, it can be one a pathogen. Whole lot. So, so do you think that it may be the stress that is combined with a lack of microbial diversity, um, a lack of good nutrition, poor sleep, affecting then your immune system oh. and the liability, the, the amount of balance in your immune system, and then that's what leads to this progression to an autoimmune disease? 
Yes, I think you're right because if you look at what's happened, we now are taking antibiotics on a daily basis, huge quantities. The amount of drugs that's going into everybody's mouth now has mm. gone through the roof. That's affecting the microbiome in the intestines. The gastrointestinal tract has to have the right sort of balance. And that balance is now out of plumb. So if you go down into the lower bowel, where we should have, say, bifidobacteria and a few others that the human um, gastrointestinal tract has got used to, that's now changed. And when we have pathogens, the clostridiums, the klebsiellas and so on of the world, what that's doing is, in fact, allowing a lot of the um, endotoxin, the lipopolysaccharide from the outer coat of these gram-positive bacteria, to gain entry through a leaky bowel. And that gets in and you end up with toxemia. Uh, this is a huge stress for the system and it ends up with inflammatory mediators racing around the bloodstream. I mean, obesity is also associated with that because what you've got is this inflamed mass with macrophages and cytokines and everything in this visceral fat. So we, we, if we're changing the microbiome, so that instead of us producing, and then the right sort of uh, microbiome is the, the right sort of bugs are going to produce acetic acid, propionic acid, butyric acid, which is acidic. Yep. And when you have an acidic bowel, you don't have the problem. You don't have the leakage. You don't have the toxemia. Uh, you don't have these large macromolecules and things getting into the body. Now, that's a huge stress. Mm. And I think people that have that huge stress uh, are at risk of releasing all these neurotransmitters and hormones to try and cope. Absolutely. Um, Klebsiella, you mentioned Klebsiella, and that was the that one was that was linked with ankylosing spondylitis. Very interesting research, how they're treating yeah. it. So you mentioned pregnenolone steel before. Now, this is really interesting yeah. because it's more like, um, uh, you know, one cup over, over runneth and the other one isn't isn't filling. Yeah, I, look, I, I have never been able to get my head around steroid metabolism. And what we're talking about here is about steroid metabolism. But pregnenolone is a major um, point that can either make a lot of the mineralocorticoids, it can make cortisol and glucocorticoids, it can make androgens. So if we're under huge stress, all of the um, cholesterol goes to pregnenolone, goes to, and then it's all taken into cortisol. Now, cortisol is the main stress hormone for chronic stress. However, when the floodgate opens and all of the substrates going into cortisol, there's a deficit in mineralocorticoids and in androgens. Mm. If your mineralocorticoids are down, you're going to crave salt and so on. If your androgens are down, you're going to have no libido. Your sex drive is going to go. So and this is why as the stress level rises and your cortisol comes up, we have problems trying to maintain blood pressure uh, because we lose salt, we hang on to potassium, but we're changing the whole mineral balance, intracellular, extracellular mineral balance, because the mineralocorticoids are absolutely important for this. So we've upset that balance to start. Yep. And at the same time, we've upset this whole uh, estrogen, progesterone, uh, testosterone, everything in, in the other side is also upset because it hasn't got the substrate. So the progesterone steel is referring to moving substrate away from those other two channels and right into the cortisol channel. And that's more of a chronic phase, is that right? Yes. Yep. That's something that happens after your cortisol has been up for a long period of time. And so if you've got high cortisol for an extended period of time, 
what happens to the receptors for cortisol at distal tissues? Well, that's an interesting question too, because you've heard of um, insulin resistance. Yep. You've heard of uh, leptin resistance. With obesity. So, w- yep. yeah, right. So you can have, you can still be hungry, but there's plenty of uh, leptin floating around. Yep. Or you can have huge amounts of insulin, but no sugar getting into the cell. Mm-hmm. This is happening at the level of the receptor. And the receptor says, look, okay, we've had so much sugar coming in here. Hang on, boys. We're going to close down shop for a while. And that's what happens. So that the receptor doesn't take the insulin anymore to allow it to shove more sugar in, or in the case of leptin. And the same with a thyroid. I mean, you can have thyroid resistance too in the same way. So you can also have cortisol resistance, which means that the cortisol receptors are not going to work, even though the cortisol level is high. If you've got cortisol resistance, it means that you have this floodgate open to inflammation because the cortisol is not working anymore as an anti-inflammatory agent. So that means all the cytokines and everything that was being held in check is no longer held in check. And that's when you have all these inflammation-related chronic degenerative diseases. So the cortisol that was originally trying to dampen inflammation because it's now shutting off the receptors, is now leading to further inflammation because it can't work. That's right. It's not working and it just cranks out more inflammation. So what's the sequelae for this sort of thing? What what happens in the person when they've got this, like their sleep and their blood pressure? What sort of symptoms do you see here? Um, Well, obviously, things will change uh, when that happens. And uh, it it makes me think of a wonderful herb um, and I only, just heard, I only just heard about this a couple of weeks ago, but withania. Yep. Withania is actually one herb that you can take to reverse the cortisol resistance. Did you know that? Because I, I didn't know that, but it was, uh, it was just a, a reference that came uh, to my notice just a couple of weeks ago. It's a cortisol receptor resistance yes. you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So withania, and that means you know, a very good withanolide at about 30 milligrams a day. Yeah. So if you've got a, a supplement that's, say, got seven or eight milligrams, you're not you're going to have to take two tablets twice daily or something like that to get it up to the right level. With regards to withania, because it's often turned Indian ginseng, yeah. what happens with um, sleep, for instance? Why is sleep so important with a person for the person with adrenal fatigue and, and why do they need so much but it's still not um, refreshing them? Well, the problem is, I, I guess, when you're sleeping, you're supposed to have... Uh, the tryptophan is converted to serotonin. Serotonin helps you sleep. Serotonin is converted to melatonin. Melatonin helps you sleep. Now, all of these different neurotransmitters and hormones need to be at the right level at the right time at night. So the cortisol starts rising from, say, 3 a.m. through to about 9 a.m. So in the morning, your cortisol starts going up. At the same time, the melatonin that was up during the night that's helping you sleep starts to go down. And it's the melatonin that that, uh, is in charge of the... Um, the um, circadian rhythm. And that's why, you know, every time I go to Europe now, I take three milligrams of melatonin every night just before I go to bed. And within three three nights, back to normal again. So melatonin is, is a really good thing for controlling um, this particular um, type of, of hormone, or sorry, this, this circadian rhythm that we're talking about. But when it comes to those other things, uh, for example, GABA is also something that is a really important. Uh, that's the gamma amino butyric acid, and it's looked on as nature's valium. So mm. th- this mm. is important to activate 
things like this. So if you've got high melatonin, you've got GABA uh, activated, you've got um, the uh, serotonin nice and high. And incidentally, you don't increase serotonin. We, we can't use tryptophan in, in all states in Australia now because of problems in the past. But you don't just take protein high in tryptophan because if you do, you'll find the other large neutral amino acids are competing with the tryptophan for uptake. When you just get tryptophan by itself taken into the, the central nervous system, if those nerves are active, they will convert to serotonin. The way to do this really is before you go to bed, have a glass of uh, say lemon juice and honey, which increases insulin. When insulin is up, it will increase the throughput of tryptophan into the central nervous system, not the other large amino acids. So you'll end up converting it to serotonin. If you just take a, a turkey dinner just before you go to bed, you've got the other large neutral amino acids competing with the tryptophan. So even though a meat might be high in tryptophan, it's not necessarily the way to get tryptophan into the brain to convert to serotonin. The best way is, is with a carbohydrate load that's going to increase insulin that then gets the tryptophan in. You know, I've ne you, you mentioned because of problems in the past with tryptophan, and it was actually a manufacturing problem, not the tryptophan. That's and right. Yet, tryptophan has been lambasted by the authorities for decades now. Yeah. Um, and you're not allowed over a certain amount unless it's in a powder, and then you can have it. But I, I remember, again, learning from you way back when that you should always take the tryptophan, as you say, with some sort of sugary meal mm. to help that insulin to drive but, it But in. now we know about fructose and we know about sucrose yeah. and we're trying to get rid of all that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people say, well, hang on. But it's, it's horses for courses. Yeah. I mean, what do you want to do? Maybe some organic honey, yeah. you know, that's really good honey going to bed in, in some lemon juice is not so bad, you know. I mean, it just depends on what you're trying to do. And what sort of dose of tryptophan do you use? I, I remember like doses of like three to four grams. Yeah, I don't think you need that much. I think, you know, a gram's fine. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and don't forget to dim the lights before you go to bed too. For 20 minutes before you go to bed, if you dim the lights, that sort of starts getting the serotonin and melatonin levels ready for rise. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to point out for the listeners is uh, you know, serotonin is very often very oversimplistically termed the, the activation hormone. Mm. So, you know, the antidepressant, so it's alertness. But... Indeed, during sleep is not just closing down the brain. Your brain is very active during certain parts of sleep, like the rapid eye movement sleep, mm. for instance. And that's where serotonin's higher. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, when I was doing my honours year, I used to work on liver fluke. And we put the liver fluke into this Krebs Hanselite buffer. Mm. And I used to just put a drop of serotonin in. And you know what? They used to jump out of the actual Petri dish that I had him in. Wow. I thought, wow, that's serotonin for you. So you're absolutely right. <laughs> Mexican jumping birds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So some of these neurotransmitters do the opposite thing of what you think. Like mm. valerian, for example, can keep people awake all night. And, you know, it, yeah. It's not always that clear cut, is it? Mm. Why is sleep, though, so important for these adrenally stressed individuals? They need more sleep and their circadian rhythms are out of whack. What do you do to, to help them get restful sleep? Well, the first thing is to clear the mind. Um, it's really important to, if there is anything on the mind, as we said before, we've got to address that, usually by writing it down before you go to bed. That's always a good way of doing mm. it. Just just write down anything that's on your mind because you think, oh, just, I'll remember that tomorrow. As soon as I wake you up, I'll do it. And you never, ever <laughs> never. remember it. So, you know, to get a good night's sleep, you, you've got to resolve unfinished business that keeps going uh, around and around in the mind. That internal dialogue yep. uh, is what creates stress. If you have an absolute 
clear mind where you're just using the senses to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, and you put your attention on those senses and you don't think about it, you don't judge it, you don't compare, then you are meditating. You are in a mindful situation. And this is why it is so important. That's probably why Mark Donahue keeps talking about it. I keep talking about it. Everybody at the moment is very aware of the absolute, absolute powerful effect of silencing the internal dialogue because most of us spend most of our life in the past or the future with this uh, just going over and over things, having, having conversations that we should have had yesterday. Mm. And you'll spend half an hour going through this amazing conversation and you'll feel really good at the end of it. Oh, I, sh I showed him, didn't I, went with that conversation. Yeah. But, you know, all that's doing is draining you of energy, yeah. basically. Yeah. You're not, there's, only, you know, there's only one place we always are in the whole of our life and it's in the present moment. We've always been here and yet we spend all our time in some future that's never going to exist and some past that there's nothing we can do about. And as well, sleep deprivation is an inflammatory state. It compromises melanocyte-stimulating hormone, serotonin, melatonin, and GABA. So sleep needs to be improved to reduce the physiological stress, and that will calm the HPA axis. And the HPA axis, of course, is the hypothalamic pituitary axis mm -hmm. that is going to lead to a generation of cortisol. Now, cortisol should rise between 3 and 9 a.m., and it should fall in the evening with the lowest level around midnight when melatonin should be at its highest. So is that why it's really important for some of these adrenally fatigued patients, particularly towards the end, that they are try you try to allow them to sleep until nine? Yes. Yes, it's very important. And a lot of people think, oh, soldier on, soldier on. You know, it doesn't matter if you feel... We, we know now that even with weight loss, people that sleep four or five hours a night are not going to lose their weight. Mm. People that sleep eight and nine hours a night are going to lose weight so much more effectively. Sleep is so important and people don't value it enough. In fact, I can remember when I was a kid, when someone got glandular fever, there was one thing that you needed to do. You needed to go to bed and lie down mm. for six weeks. How many people now go and lie down for six weeks? Mm. No, no. I, I, you've had glandular fever or EB virus? No, no, no. We'll be back at work in three days. That's right. And unfortunately, the immune system never recovers. And that's a real problem. I think that our society doesn't recognize now the fact that rest, sleep, just pulling out a little bit of physiological R&R &R is something that is so important for these people. And it, I'd like to see it, you know, reintroduced. I like si siestas. I think that half the Mediterranean paradox is to do with a siesta. You yep, know what I mean? People absolutely. have got to just pull themselves out from this stressful existence that we live in. And when that happens, things start going in the right direction. So I've got to ask, though, how do you pragmatically intervene there and with somebody who's trying to hold down a nine-to-five job and say you need to sleep till nine? What do you try and do there? How, how do you work it? Well, I mean, there is things called sick leave. And I, I mean, if you do come down with something like glandular fever, I think you've just got to bite the bullet and say, look, I, you know, and, and get a, a certificate that says, look, I can't be back at work for a, a certain amount of time. And a lot of um, more modern companies these days uh, would allow their workers to work from home. I mean, we've all got laptops now and we're all online. And 
even that is better because you're you're just not in the certain situation where there's a stressful environment. You know, you're at home. I mean, if you're a woman, you're home with your kids, mm. and your kids are there. Um, I mean, anything that'll lower the stress. I'm not saying it's a hundred percent, but it's better than it could be. Not if necessarily a stress-less environment being home with well, kids. Well, well, no, that's <laughs> what am I saying? But you know what I mean. It, it's it's anything that lowers the stress level, and yeah. it will it will change depending on the individual. So, what about things like um, you're talking to the company about? that employee coming in later to work. Well, that's a possibility, yeah. You can sort of straddle shifts or you can just say, look, for the next however long, I'm going to come in at 10 o'clock, but I'm going to work through till 7 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned shift work. I mean, shift work is particularly indicated even even in all, all raised all-cause mortality, cancer. Mm. So it's a real interesting thing how when the adrenals have given up the ghost, mm. your immune system starts to flag as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they're all locked in together, as is the thyroid gland. Mm, that's right. So, well, let's talk about how the stressed adrenal glands relate to thyroid function because it's actually a key underpinning. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting one because if someone actually has um, a lot of stress and they have low thyroid function, a person usually will be treated for low TSH, low T3, low T4, and they'll be given thyroxine. Really, the actual problem is coming from high corticotrophic releasing hormone, high uh, ACTH, high glucocorticoids. And all of those factors, particularly the ACTH, the glucocorticoids, are going to inhibit the production of the thyroid stimulating hormone. They're going to inhibit the production of T4, T3, and there's going to be an increase in reverse T3. Now, this is all coming about not because there was a problem with the thyroid um, gland in itself. Mm. It was coming about because of a huge stress level. When you're so stressed, the body's metabolism is working at a certain level and it's trying to slow it down. How does it slow it down? It inhibits the thyroid function. The thyroid function is responsible to, for the revving up of the metabolism. You know, the heart rate goes up and your, your, your revs are going up in all the cells. Now, if you're stressed, how beautiful is it when, you can, when the stress system, the hypothalamic pituitary axis is going to have a little bit of a chat to the thyroid and say, listen, mate, why don't we just cool it for a while, okay? So we're going to bring this down. TSH might come down to T3, T4, okay. And you might get a bit of reverse T3 in there. That's fine. So what we do is not try and stimulate the thyroid hormone by giving thyroxine. We look at the stress hormones. And that's why it's really important, I think, when there is a thyroid problem in a stressed individual to get the salivary cortisol test uh, and also the thyroid function test to see what is going on because they can be related. And the, the, the dampening down of the thyroid function is just a natural system that the body uses to try and slow down metabolism. I'm reminded of a Rolling Stones song. You can't always get what you want, <laughs> but you get what you need. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it see, sounds like the autonomic nervous system, doesn't yeah, it? That's right. Yeah. So, you, you know, you mentioned looking at thyroid hormone tests, but there's many other tests that we can use to determine adrenal health and dysfunction. Absolutely. What sort of test do you use? Well, the, the first one I would suggest is you've got to get your cortisol ACTH because, you know, that, that is looking at your, your glucocorticoid profile. Mm -hmm. But I would also be looking at DHEA. Uh, I'd be looking at things like the neurotransmitter profile. We mentioned before things like adrenaline, noradrenaline, serotonin, 
uh, dopamine, they can all be looked at. Um, but the thyroid function test, as, as we've just said, that should be also looked at because that is always looked at in conjunction with a stressed uh, person. And you can get urinary or salivary melatonin looked at. Uh, and for the for the gut, if the guts involve secretory IgA, you can get tests for that as well. And importantly, because the gut is the manufacturer of ninety to ninety five percent of your body's testosterone. Um, forgive me, serotonin. Serotonin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so also, if it's not working well. And don't forget that that's where we can also convert um, T three to T four. It's in the gut, it's in the liver, and it's in the kidneys. So uh, those places where we activate our thyroxin. Is, is, it includes the gut. And again, an important message, and I've seen this for years, you know, people would say there's a thyroid condition, let's, let's treat the thyroid. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. No, it's looking... Well, <laughs> these people would just rebound with nausea because yeah. you're not looking at supporting the adrenals, supporting the gut, exactly. supporting the mind indeed. Exactly. So um, what do you use? You know, what, what, how do you intervene? What supplements do you use? What lifestyle measures do you recommend to people who are suffering from adrenal fatigue? Well, the core intervention, I think, has got to be adaptogens. And adaptogens, my favourite is withania. Withania is an adaptogen that is gentle. It doesn't have all the hard edges that maybe Panax ginseng has. Uh, Siberian ginseng is also reasonably gentle. I, I, I like that. And American ginseng is a real it's a wow. mind ginseng. Yeah. Is a mind ginseng. Yeah. So, you know, you put all those together in, in, in one supplement, and I think you've got the best of all worlds. Now, you add that together, of course, when you're stressed, what do you lose on a daily basis? B vitamins. A lot of people forget this. You think, oh, yeah, they're, B, they're water-soluble, but, you know, we'll, we get it in our food. But, you know, when you're stressed, you have such a high requirement for not just one, don't just give B1 or B3 or B, give the lot. And you need to take those on a daily basis, at least, and probably a couple of times a day. The other one that is really important is vitamin C. Often overlooked. Often overlooked. I used to overlook it, or commonly. I overlooked it till I went to a conference once at Darling Harbour. It was in the entertainment centre, and there was a dark phase microscopy there, and I was really stressed, and someone wanted to volunteer wanted to see that what their blood looked like. So I said, oh, I'd like to have a look at my polymorphonuclear leukocytes. Why not? So they looked at my leukocytes, and you know what? They were sitting there like Jabba the Hutt. They weren't <laughs> moving. They were just these great fat blobs there, and I thought, hmm, this is no good. So I went home, and I started shoveling in 10, 20, 30 grams of vitamin C for the next two days. It was a three-day conference, and at the last day, I went back to them. I said, can we have a look at that uh, blood again, you know, and have a look at my polymorphonuclear leukocytes? So they had a look. And you know what? It's the first time I'd actually seen these cells move. They move oh, around. Yeah. And that was because I had no vitamin C. The highest source of vitamin C in the body is in the leukocytes. The next highest is in the adrenal glands. So the white blood cells is a very important source. And when you're coming down with stressful situations, you lose all the vitamin C in your white blood cells. The phagocytic action is gone. It can't do what it would normally do to pathogens. So here was an example. And there's nothing like, I mean, ever since then, I thought, wow, this is vitamin C at work. It then became phagocytic and it was able to handle the load. So vitamin C, when you're stressed, very important on a daily basis in divided doses. The next one I would probably recommend would be for the GI tract, and that would be Saccharomyces boulardii. Saccharomyces boulardii is a really important um, substance that one should take to uh, help the whole gastrointestinal tract. It's really important if you're stressed. 
uh, for the whole health of the gastrointestinal tract. You can measure um, secretory IgA, and that's the one that Saccharomyces boulardii particularly helps. So if your secretory IgA is down, like there was a whole lot of university students at Sydney Uni sitting for exams, and they measured their secretory IgA in the saliva. They went down rapidly, lowered under stress of exams. So if you want to get that back up, Saccharomyces boulardii is the way to do it. So take it as a supplemental form. I, I can recommend that. Uh, also, um, don't forget probiotics. We, meant, we mentioned the um, dysbiosis. It's really important to correct that. There's two ways of doing it. Firstly, to have a wide diversity. That means lots of strains, you know, at least a dozen or 10. And you've got to have strains that the human body is familiar with. We don't know at the moment what are the strains for the whole world's civilization, and they vary from country to country. They vary depending on the food intake, depending on the stress levels and so on. Mm. But we do know that we've now got more than just lactobacillus, um, acidophilus and bifidobacterium bifida. We mm. actually have supplements that have got various strains in them. So have a look for those, but don't forget the prebiotics. In other words, these little critters, they live on things called fibre. Soluble fibre, insoluble fibre, you need both of those. Remember before, earlier on, I mentioned how that we need to have an acidic bowel. And an acidic bowel means lots of these uh, short-chain fatty acids. That's how you will make them, by having plenty of this fibre. The soluble fibre or the insoluble fibre is very important. Even if you're on a paleo diet, don't forget that the paleo diet isn't just fat and, and meat. And some of the people on a paleolithic diet many, many thousands of years ago were getting 120, I'll repeat that, 120 grams of fibre a day. So we need vegetable matter. We need to take in things like asparagus, artichokes, onions, leek, garlic. All of those have got the right sort of fibre for acidifying the gut and being food for the right sort of bacteria. So what about other anti-inflammatory supplements? What, what sort of things do you use? What, um... Look, my favourite has got to be curcumin. Curcumin just recently has been going through research where they have been able to, uh, well, the particle size, shall we say, has come down and down and down. You can actually get curcumin now. You put it in a, in a glass of water, it will dissolve. So get a supplement with rapid absorption that will give you, say, 30 times the absorption. And that way, in the past, I used to use it simply because it was good for anything from the mouth to the anus and any inflammation at all. It was, mm. There was nothing like it. But now we know we can get it absorbed into the bloodstream. It can get to any tissue in the body, any tissue in the body, including the brain. And they're now having research into dementias and Alzheimer's disease and uh, really Parkinson's. Interesting and research. it's just fantastic research, all with curcumin. Mm. Now, if you add the curcumin together with some of the, the top quality uh, fish oils that have got a really good amount of EPA, DHA, then you've got a, a perfect combination without going into some of the other herbs. There's a lot of, there's many different herbs that are anti-inflammatory as well, but they're the two that I use. I use the curcumin together with the fish oil. You've spoken about things that you can help with supporting the adrenal glands. The, you know, your various herbs, adaptogens, your vitamin C, your B vitamins. You've spoken about anti-inflammatory compounds that we can use to dampen the inflammation that help might be, that might be blocking the action of cortisol. Did I say that right? Yep. <laughs> I understood. <laughs> I, I understood. <laughs> what, about, what about things like enhancing sleep and directly helping your immune system, for, okay. particularly in the chronic phase. All right. Well, look, there, there's a couple of herbs that I think we should mention at this stage. 
One of them is tart cherry. The other one is lavender oil. Uh, and you've heard of valerian. As I said, that can have mm. the, the wrong effect, but also it's only in a few people that would happen. But valerian uh, is also another one of those wonderful sleep herbs. And the, and the, the amazing one is Sisyphus. Mm. So there, there's a whole combination of them that you, you could take. And I would also really try and get magnesium levels as high as possible. Magnesium is definitely a mineral that will cause the muscles to relax. It lowers the blood pressure. It lowers the heart rate. It causes you to feel relaxed and a little bit laid back. In fact, the side effect of too much magnesium is bradycardia and low blood pressure and, and fatigue. So, you know, if you're all dressed up with nowhere to go, with adrenal stress, with lots of adrenaline floating, magnesium is the one I'd recommend. But the other one that's really interesting is derived from casein. It's a 10 amino acid fragment called lactium. And lactium also is wonderful to enhance sleep. It's not a drug. Uh, it's just a peptide that's been isolated, um, and it was done in France over a period of, of 20, 20 years, and it's a, it's a wonderful supplement. So if you can get the lactium together with the magnesium and these other herbs, that is the way that I would approach getting a better sleep, which is going to help regulate cortisol, melatonin, serotonin, uh, GABA, and all the things that we've just mentioned. I've got to ask a question, Bob. What do you say to people who are overcautious? about avoiding dairy products when they're talking about lactium? If you've actually got a real allergy to a protein... In, an IgE. Yeah. Right. Or even if you've got uh, IgA, IgM, IgG, it doesn't matter, right. which, which, of course, manifests later, then you can't, you can't take dairy products because there is an immunological reaction. But if it's lactose, and a lot of people are lactose intolerant, People don't realize, you know, they say, oh, how much lactose is in this tablet? Oh, it says it's 50 milligrams. I can't take this mm, tablet. Mm. Well, this is nonsense because you can take up to, well, it varies, but you can at least take, say, eight grams of lactin, maybe up to 12 of, of uh, lactose. lactose yeah. And so lactose is not the sort of thing that causes an anaphylactic reaction. So you can, if you're lactose intolerant, you can take it. But the other one that I would suggest is that the A2 milk that's out there now in supermarkets yep. is the one that I've been suggesting for years because the, some of the research has uh, shown that the A2 protein, not the A1, and the A2 comes from Bos indicus, not Bos taurus cows. It's Jersey cows, is, yeah. Well, yes, basically. And that is really important to um, try and prevent diabetes and ischemic heart disease. Now, that's not widely known out there because I guess the dairy farmers and, um, and some of the companies that, that put normal milk out there, they wouldn't want everyone taking A2 milk. But it's in the supermarkets and it doesn't say with A2, I might point out. A lot of the milks there now have got onto it and they're saying with A2. All milk has A2, but it also has A1. Look for the milk that is A2 milk because it has no A1 and that's the best milk to take. So all in all... Um, I think that the problem is, is mainly with, with lactose, and you can actually get lactase as an enzyme to take to try and knock out if you're worried about lactose. Yep. Drops are best. Drops are best, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what about the immune function? Well, the immune function is really related, as far as I'm concerned, with mushrooms. There's a whole lot of mushrooms that are really good to boost immune function. One of them that I like is uh, Trametes versicolor, and the other one is Cordyceps sinensis. 
Now, both of those mushrooms together with, we've already mentioned withania, uh, but you can, you can combine them together also with astragalus or astragalus, depending on, on how Which you Which school you went with, to. With all of its polysaccharides <laughs> and things for the immune system. But, you know, that combination is a great combination for the immune system. What about lifestyle measures, though? Because let's face it, you know, if, if you're not controlling the inner mind, mm. you're not going to get very far because you're constantly wearing yourself out and the goodness that these sort of supplements would be doing you. That's right. And that's why I think that some of the techniques that are around, I know where I come from, they've got classes in Tai Chi, Qigong, uh, yoga, um, meditation. It's all over the place. I mean, the whole world is, is understanding. Yeah. And there's a lot of books out, um, Eckhart Toller's The Power of Now and so on, that are not based on any religion or any particular philosophy. It's just based on the idea that you should try and get out of the internal dialogue that's there all the time. A lot of people are not even aware of it. Mm. A lot of people that I spoke to said, no, no, um, I, I don't think all the time. But we're always thinking all the time. All of us all think all the time. And any of these techniques that can center us, for example, if you're doing Tai Chi, you put your attention on the movement of the Tai Chi. If you're doing yoga, put your attention on the movement itself. Put your attention on the breath. I always like to say the out-breath is the most important, not the in-breath. The reason for this is that it's going to activate the vagal block so that if you're stressed, I mentioned before, it's hard to meditate when you're stressed. Mm. If your heart rate's slightly increased, if you put your attention, just your attention, no thoughts on the out-breath, the vagal block comes in and slows the heart rate. So if you try this at home, as you breathe in, have your fingers on your, on your pulse, you'll find that it's a, just a normal pulse rate. Then breathe out and you'll find that the pulse rate drops. So as you breathe out, the vagal block comes in. This is you changing your autonomic nervous system to make you more relaxed. So this is a little technique that you can use that I think is really important. So putting your attention on breathing, and remember what I said before, when you walk, just walk, and when you eat, just eat. Try and put your attention on the senses without any, any feeling of um, judgment, comparisons, or explanations of things, you know, just come into the present moment and open up your hearing and your seeing and touch and taste, and you're meditating, basically. I think this is why meditation and mindfulness takes practice. Don't, don't assume that you're going to get it pegged on the first attempt. It's something that you really have to practice, like exercise. That's right. In yeah. fact, it can take many, many years. I mean, I've been trying to do this all my life. And I'm, you know, as I said, I'm always a flawed human being, but I'm nowhere near where I'd like to be. But at least I know the, the path to take. Mm. And that's the main thing. When you're stressed, there's one way that you can get out of stress, and that's coming into the present moment, into now. Because in now, there's no stress. The stress is associated with the past or the, or the, or the, the, pre or the future. Yep. Uh, and if you can just stay as much as you can in the present moment, all of that disappears. And remember, it's always coming from the mind. We don't have the beast chasing us anymore. We have tins and refrigerators. We don't need to worry about our food if there's a drought. We have uh, water on tap now, so we're, we're not going to run out of water. Um, all of our problems come from financial problems or from relationship problems or work problems and so on. Mm. So this is why the stress has changed from how it used to be to what it is today. And that's why we end up with 
the general adaptation syndrome where we have this huge resistance phase. It can go on for months and eventually this collapse at the end, this exhaustion, this burnout that a lot of people can relate to that's associated with many of our chronic degenerative diseases. Bob, as usual, I pick up so many practical insights into how to manage chronic and complex diseases. So thank you once again for coming in today and talking, as, talking to us about adrenal fatigue. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. <laughs>